0: So today, we're in lesson 17, and we're going to look at King David. We're at the point now where David becomes really the king of Israel. And it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey through most of 1 Samuel, and it's been a journey even through the first part of 2 Samuel, as we've seen really in the first opening chapters there being a civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And of course, David is the one who emerges uh, really as the one who will be king. And everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the Lord has promised that. So we're not going to read these passages. We're going to focus today on several different passages. We're going to look at chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. We're also going to be looking at chapter 11 through 12, and uh, we'll be focusing on those passages as well. All right, so let's get right into it. We're going to start with chapter 5, and we're going to talk about really uh, David becoming king. Okay, David becoming king. So he is anointed as king, and we see this in the first five verses of chapter 5, as well as the first three verses of chapter 11 in First Chronicles. So, here's what you're going to notice, is that the elders of all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. So, all of the elders, all that's all of the leaders from all of the 12 tribes came to David at Hebron. Now, you remember, at this point, David is the king of Judah, because the tribe of Judah anointed him to be their king. Well, now that Oshibba Seth has been killed, there really isn't anybody to take over. The nation is without a king. And so all of the tribes come to Hebron to David. And, and here's what they do. They proclaim their kinship to David and the promise that the Lord made to him. Let me read this to you as they've proclaim their kinship verse one indeed we are your bone and your flesh now what are they talking about there well they're saying hey we are family we are of the same blood we are the children of israel okay we are related to you distantly of course but they're all of israel all right And then it says, also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. So they're remembering two things here. They remember when Saul was king, David was the hero. David was the one who brought victory to Israel over the Philistines. David was the one who was kind of leading them as the commander within the army. Now, he wasn't the commander of the army because that was Abner, but he was a significant force to be reckoned with. And then notice now they also remember the promise. If you notice that, everybody, even Saul, recognized there was the promise that the Lord gave concerning David that he would be king. So they proclaimed their kinship and their their promise that the Lord made to him. Now it says then that David made a covenant. He made a, a, a sacred agreement with the elders. He made a covenant with the elders of Israel and they anointed him king. So now he becomes the anointed one. He becomes the one who is anointed to be king over all Israel. Now I want you to Pay attention to this. Remember I told you when Oshibosheth was killed, David, when he had his murderers pronounce judgment on them for their execution, he didn't say that they had lifted their hands against the Lord's anointed. He said that they had killed a righteous man. Now, what I want you to see here is is that's obviously reflective of the fact that it was Abner who made Oshibosheth the king Not Israel itself, and he wasn't anointed as that. But here we see Israel coming, and they are anointing the promised one. That's what David is, the promised one, as king, as king. Now, it then goes on, Samuel then goes on, the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel goes on, and it tells you how long he reigned, and how old he was when he became king. Okay, so how long he reigned and how old he was. So David was 30 years old when he began his 40-year reign as king. He was 30 years old and reigned for 40 years. All right, now let's stop for a moment. You remember in 1 Samuel, when Samuel anoints him, he is just a youth. He was described as a ruddy boy. He was described as somebody that wasn't even significant to be brought to a feast because he was out watching the sheep. So that tells you that he was somewhere in those early teens. Early teens. Then when he goes into the service of Saul and uh, you know plays the music for him to soothe him, but then later when he goes and he slays Goliath, He's probably, at that point, about 17 years old. So here we are. David is on the run, living in exile for a good number of years, probably for a decade. Okay, From the time he entered into Saul's service and the time that he started running, before he even becomes king, and he becomes king of Judah. And so it says here he was 30 years old. Now he's not this, the, the writer is not telling you he became king of Israel at 30. He became king. How do I know that? Because he tells you in the same verse, he reigned over Judah seven and a half years and over all of Israel 33 years. So I want you to hear me. When he becomes king of Israel, when they anoint him, he makes that covenant with the elders. He's 37 years old. 37. So folks, from the time possibly of his killing Goliath to the time that he would become literally the king, it's probably 20 years. From the time of the anointment, it's definitely over 20 years. So I want you to pause for a moment. So we're looking at a historical narrative here We're looking at what happened in King David's life, but I'm telling you, 20 years or more before the promise is fulfilled. And I want you to reflect for a moment, not just 20 years, but 20 years of difficulty, 20 years of heartache, 20 years of being on the run before the promise is fulfilled that he would become king, and let's, and you should say, well, let's close it. He lives happily ever after. I think we know the answer to that story too, right? Because that's what the rest of Second Samuel is about. But that just tells you about life. Doesn't reflect poorly on God. It reflects. On the nature of life. Things don't come easy, even if you have a promise. But God ultimately fulfills His will and His word, which is what we see here in this passage. So, with that, when we come to verse 6, we're going to see now that David is going to take a city for himself. We see that in verses 6 through 16, chapter 5. We also see that in verses 4 through 9, as well as uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Okay, So David and his men went against the Jebusites in Jerusalem. So remember, at this point, we've seen also in, in the book of Judges that there was a time when Israel took Jerusalem, but obviously the Jebusites took it back, here at this point, the Jebusites, which are the Canaanite people, have Jerusalem, and David goes up to take it, because Jerusalem is in Judah. All right, So this is part of what was allocated to them, so David goes up and takes it with his men. Now, because they thought David could not win, they stated that the handicapped would repel them. So the Jebusites thought, well, there's no way that David's going to be able to come up in here. So they make a pretty bold statement. Okay, Verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking David cannot come in here. They thought they were pretty secure. They thought their walls, they thought there's no way that David with his Israelites could come into here. And we know that that's not true. David took the stronghold of Zion, which would be called the city of David. From that point on, even to this day, Jerusalem is known as the city of David. The other term for it is Zion. So obviously, Zion was a name that was reflective there of that place, Mount Zion. It was reflective of Jerusalem, even from of old. So we see that. David took the stronghold. And David proclaimed as they were attacking. This is the most interesting thing here. David proclaimed that whoever attacks the Jebusites first will be chief of the army. Now, I say Jebusites, but I want you to notice what David actually says here. And here's what he says. Verse 8. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house or the palace. Okay? So the blind and the lame, that's a statement referring to the Jebusites, because the Jebusites had said what? That the blind and the lame would repel David. So David says, okay, who's going to be the first one? Who's going to be the one to attack? The one who attacks, the one who, who makes his way to attack them, the blind and the lame, will become chief of the army. He's offering the head of the army to whoever it is. Because remember, before that, the head of the army of Israel was who? Abner. And Abner's dead. And they've not replaced him. So David is offering the chief to whoever it is that attacks first. Now, it's also, the scripture tells us, it was also then said that the lame and the blind, meaning the Jebusites, could not enter into the palace or the royal palace because David hated that they said that. Now, some people today will say that, oh, well, by the way, that meant that no lame or blind person could ever enter into the palace. No, it's referring to the Jebusites. How do you know that, George? Well, because we're going to be introduced in a few chapters here to a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. Who is the son of Jonathan, who also is what? Lame. And you're going to see that David has him sit at his table every night to feast with him. So if the lame weren't allowed into the palace, Mephibosheth would not have been allowed. Well, he could have made an exception. No, the implication of the text is is that it's referring to the Jebusites, Okay, the Jebusites. Now, Joab then, we find this in 1 Chronicles. Joab was the first to attack, and he was made chief of the army of Israel. And that would be true, except in one instance, throughout David's reign. And that instance, well, that's a story in itself. We'll wait till we get to that chapter. But Joab, from this point on, becomes chief of, of the army of Israel. David then, the text tells us, then expanded Jerusalem, he expanded the city, and Joab, who's his right-hand man now, repaired the existing city, the old city, so to speak. The city that was defeated. He repaired it, probably repaired the walls. That's probably what it's talking about here. Now, then when we get... Further into the text, we find out that there's this king called Hiram, who is the king of Tyre. So Hiram, king of Tyre, sent craftsmen to build David a house or a palace. So Hiram, who is the king of Tyre, king of Tyre is what we would call today in uh, northern, it's an island kingdom, it was an island at that time, off the coast of Sidon, which we would know as the coast of Lebanon. Tyre is in Lebanon today. It's not an island anymore. That's a history lesson in itself. We can talk about that later. But he sends, in diplomacy, in, in because of the strength of David and who he is, sends down craftsmen, masons, woodworkers, and everything, to build David a palace, okay, Build David a palace. All right, now knowing, now here's what it says here. It's very interesting. Knowing that the Lord had selected him, David exalted his kingdom for the people. The text says for the sake of the people. Now this is where David and Saul are different. Saul, when he becomes king, would hold his, really his court under a terebinth tree. He would hold it under a tree, being reflective of how the people were that time. They were basically tribal people who existed in the land. David now comes around because he has been anointed by king. He exalts his kingdom beyond just being tribal people to being like a literal kingdom having a capital city now, which is what? Jerusalem, with a palace. And he did it all for the sake of what? The people. And what do you mean for the sake of the people? Well, he did it because what he's doing here is is he's centralizing the nation beyond simply just a group of tribal people who dwell in the land, who are called occasionally to go do something, to being a formable nation. Israel. Not just 12 tribes anymore, but Israel to be significant in reaching and defeating their enemies. That's what we see happening here. That's what the text is pointing out. Now, it also goes on and tells you that David took more wives and concubines after he came to Jerusalem. Remember, up to this point, he already has seven wives. Six that he had while he was on the run, plus Michal, the daughter of Saul. And now we see that David, actually when he gets to Jerusalem, during his reign in Jerusalem, acquires more wives and more concubines. Now what's a concubine? Again, concubine is a lesser wife. It is a wife who does not have the status of a legitimate wife, so therefore the children of a concubine would not be considered legitimate heirs. They would still be children of the king, but they would not have a legitimate right to whatever would be left over from the king later when he died. So we see that here. So more sons and daughters were born to David, including Solomon. So Solomon is included in this list. And of course, we're going to reflect on Solomon a little bit later as we get into Second Samuel a little bit later on. So we see this happening here. Now, as always happens, it happens even in our modern day world, when there is a new king and a kingdom, the enemies want to test the king or throw a problem at him or, or try to use the time to destabilize we saw that when Saul became king we saw that with the attack of Ammon against Jabesh Gilead and Saul responded to that here we now the text will tell us in chapter 5 as well as in chapter 14 that the Philistines are going to react and respond and test David so when the Philistines heard that David was made king, they gathered to attack Israel. All right, so obviously this would have been pretty hard pill for them to swallow because David had lived among them. You can almost kind of think about what Ictish is thinking. It's like, oh my goodness, I've been harboring this guy and now he's the king. He used me. So probably in their anger, they decide to attack because in their mind, Israel has already been defeated many times. Israel is just a group collection of tribes. We can take these guys on, probably. So they heard that David was the king, and so they decide to attack. Now notice now what David does. This is the character of David. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord told David that they will be delivered to him. So David goes to the Lord and says, hey. Should we go up against them? And the Lord says, go. I have delivered them into your hand, the text says. I have given your enemies to you. Okay? I've given your enemies to you. And of course, David meets them in battle. And David defeated them. And Israel took their idols that they left behind. So de- so decisive was the, the victory that the Philistines left. They didn't even have time to pack up. And as they left, what was found in their camp were their idols to their gods. And it's kind of significant here. Kind of like, remember when the Philistines beat Israel that time and they took the ark? Here we see reflected now that Israel takes their gods. That's how insignificant their gods are against the God of Israel. So that's the first defeat. That's the first attack. Well, the text goes on and tells you that's not enough. Maybe after they regroup or something, the Philistines decide to attack again. Maybe that was a fluke or something, so they decide to attack again. Probably a little bit of time because they got to recoup, lick their wounds or whatever. But the text tells you there's a second attack in this very same place, in the very same valley. So once again, the Philistines gathered to attack Israel. happening again once again the Philistines gather to attack Israel and again David's going to do as he normally does he's going to what inquire of the Lord okay inquire of the Lord so David inquired of the Lord and he gave David a different battle plan now think about that for a moment that that kind of tells you a little bit about our God Because here we are, same valley, same group of people are going to attack you. You would think, okay, hey, this worked the last time. Let's use it this time. No, no, he goes to the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to give them to you, but this is what I want you to do. It's an entirely different battle plan. What does that tell us about our God? He doesn't necessarily work in the same ways over and over again. Sometimes he chooses different ways to accomplish his purpose. And we see that here, okay? We see that here. So the Lord gave David a victory over the Philistines as he drove them as far as Gezer. So this time, they didn't just leave behind everything. David was able to repel them to a far distance from where they were. A massive victory over the Philistines. This is beginning to show you the might of David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and that they are no longer just a ragtag group of tribes. They are a kingdom under a great king, David, David. Now, we're going to go on then to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 10. Through chapter 12, verse 40, and this, these two chapters are really going to talk about, we're not going to get really in-depth with them, but they're going to talk about David's heroes. And what I want you to notice, and I would encourage you to read these two chapters on your own, usually when God raises up a man, when God raises up someone that you sense is anointed, What usually happens, and this has been true through history, and I've seen this even now, that when God raises up a man who is anointed of the Lord, he knits the hearts of others to that man, to that person. And they do what they can for that person because they recognize that he is anointed. I can think of I can think of one individual right now that my heart is knitted to and whatever that person asks me because they are anointed of God, they are a servant of the Lord, I would do that for them. This is what we see with David's heroes. The same thing. There's a recognition from these folks of who David is and they'll do anything for him. And literally that's what the text will tell you. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. So here's what happens with these two chapters. The chronicler lists the mighty men of David who served as his captains. Now they started out with David when he was on the run. But they ended up being the captains in his army. And you know what? Wise choice of David. If Who am I going to get to lead my army? It's the men who've been with me from the beginning, the men who have shown that they are loyal and their hearts are with me. And that's what we see happening here. So when you read these chapters, you're going to see specifically three groups of people. Okay, First group is this. The first of his heroes was known as the three. So when you read the text, you're going to read the stories of three specific men who, by the way, were really heroes. Really heroes and did mighty things for David and the Lord, the three. All right, then the three were followed by the 30. So the text will then go on and reveal that aside from these initial three, there were the 30, there were 30 men who would do whatever for David. And one of those men was Uriah the Hittite. He wasn't even a Jew, but he's going to be significant later in the story as well. The thirty. Three of the 30, three men from the 30, did something amazing. Three of the 30 broke through the Philistines to the well of Bethlehem. The text will tell you that David is sitting there and he's like, oh, that I would have a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem, his hometown. You've you've been kind of like that, haven't you? I mean, there's been times when you've sat by and thought, oh, man, it would be awesome to have a piece of pie that grandma made. Or like for me, I'm thinking about to have like from from my German grandmother some goulash that she made with potatoes. Oh, that would be lovely just to have that right. I'm thinking that right now. David's having that kind of moment. Oh, it would be just refreshing to have a drink of oil from the water in Bethlehem. Three of the guys hear that. So they decide to do something about it. What do they do? The text tells you that they break through the lines. Think about this. Break through the lines of the Philistines to go get him a drink of water from the well. The well. And so they did this because David desired water from his hometown. These guys are willing to do whatever for David. And this illustrates it. Isn't that amazing? That's called love. That's called devotion. So they break through the line. They get the water the text tells you. And they what? Bring it back to David. What does he do? (sighs) Boy, that was refreshing. No, this tells you the character of David. When they brought the water to David, he poured it out before the Lord to honor the men. They... He, they brought the water to him. He didn't just say, oh, wow, thanks, guys. This is awesome. This is great. Can't, I wish I could share it with you. No, no. He takes the water and says, you know what? I am not worthy to drink this because this is the blood of men. This is the sacrifice of these men. And so he poured it out as an offering before the Lord to honor them. That, that's the character of David. David. That's the character of these men, the 30. That's what the text is telling you. In fact, I would encourage you to read it because there are other stories here about the mighty things they did. Like one of the stories is about one of them killing an Egyptian and the significance of that. And there are many stories like that and who they are and what they did. In chapter 12... He also goes beyond the 30 to talk about some others from all over Israel. The Chronicler also lists the men of Israel who supported David before he became king. That's what the Chronicler is doing here. He's telling you the mighty stories of these men. These are awesome stories. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 5, to the end of chapter 12, Next week when we come, we're going to get right into chapter 6 and we're going to look at a desire that David has. He's living in a great palace and you know what? He wants the Ark of the Covenant with him. And so we're going to go back to the Ark. The story goes back to the Ark because David wants to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. And so that's what we're going to look at next week from chapter 6 as well as from chapter 13 of First Chronicles. And we're going to see what the story has there for us.